Tommy. How's the peeping? Tommy. How's the peeping? Tommy, 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 Tommy. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I am Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1975's Tommy, directed by Ken Russell, written by The Who, as in the band. Also, Ken Russell worked on the screenplay. Pete Townsend worked on the rock opera part with additional materials provided by John Entwistle and Keith Boone. It stars Roger Daltrey as Tommy and Margaret as Nora and Oliver Reed as Frank. When you mentioned this was by The Who, put me in mind of the Animaniac sketch where they did a Who's On First style bit. Oh yeah, with uh, Slappy the Squirrel and her grandson, I think it's grandson. Or nephew or something. I have yeah. no earthly idea. I don't remember what the squirrel's name is. No, I I don't remember at all, but I remember that bit of the commercial specifically. They like go to Woodstock or something like that. Yes. And Skippy. Slappy. Skippy, yeah. Slappy and Skippy. Skippy, let's start over. Is there a band on stage? Yes. Does that band have a name? Yes. Do you know the name of that band? Yes. Then tell me the name of the band on stage. Who? The name of the band. Who? The band on stage. Who? The band playing on stage. Who? That's what I want to know. I'm telling you. Who is on stage? Yes. Who is? Yes. Oh, so the name of the band is Yes. No, Aunt Sloppy. Yes is not even at this concert. Then who is on stage? Yes. Who is? Yes. That's what I just said. Yes is on stage. No, yes is not here. Who is on stage? What are you asking me for? I'm not. Wait, let's try this again. Do you see the band on stage? No, I don't see the band. That's a different group entirely. On stage, Skippy. Look, see the band? No, I don't. Get rid of those John Lennon glasses and look. There, there's the band. No, that's not the band. The band is performing later on. Who's on stage? You tell me. Who? The name of the group on stage. Who? The name of the group. Who? The group on stage. Who? The band. No, the band is performing later. Right now we're listening to who? That's what I want to know. So that's what we were talking about. Yes, it's a pretty great sketch. There's that one question you ask me for every hiatus episode that we've done. Why are we watching this movie? We are watching this movie because it is the second of the two listener-requested movies that we are doing during this hiatus. One of our other $5 level supporters is actually a combination of your mom and dad. Yeah. We've allowed them to share an account. You will probably remember them from our conversations about Pocahontas during our other hiatus there. And I asked them, hey, what movie do you want us to watch? And your dad gave me a list, a legit list. And I was looking down the list and I was like, well, is there one you want us to watch? Like, give me some direction here. And he fired back with Tommy. Okay, so we're watching Tommy. Because Tina Turner is in Tommy. Excellent. It's actually one of her few other movie roles. Yeah, I remember one time we were looking through her IMDb and struggling to find an actual movie on the list. Mm -hmm. Musicians' IMDb's can get a little messy because every time they're in a video, a music video, it is listed as a 
production. Yeah. It can look very similar on the list to a movie. So if I remember right, her movie list was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Tommy, and The Last Action Hero, I want to say. The one with Arnold Schwarzenegger where she plays the mayor and she's on screen for literally two seconds. Yes. Yes. We could have done another Schwarzenegger movie, but I'm actually glad we're watching this one because growing up, I listened to a lot of classic rock music because that's the station that my dad would play in the car. And, you know, I'm not very original that way. So The Who was one of those bands where I'd hear their songs on the radio. And I don't remember where I first learned that this movie was a thing. I remember exactly where I was when I first learned that this movie was a thing. It was at this very table talking about what hiatus material we were going to to talk about. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea that they had made Tommy into a rock opera movie. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with the song, same way that you are from the radio growing up. We had a local oldie station that was phenomenal. The name is escaping me at the moment, but most of my education on music of this era is from that one radio station. Mm. I have the album Tommy. I'm pretty sure I do. I don't want to pull it up right now on the computer and check that I do because that's just a level of inside baseball stuff that we really don't need to bog down the podcast with. But I'm pretty sure I have it. And I've listened to the tracks before. And I guess I've never thought, okay, how are they going to put this together into an actual movie? But Ken Russell pretty much did so. For anyone that's not familiar with it, the IMDb summary says a psychosomatically deaf, dumb, and blind boy becomes a master pinball player and subsequently the object of a religious cult. Okay. So I showed you the trailer. Yes. What are your expectations for this movie? I expect to be entertained in a surprising way. I suspect that when we come back to the microphone after watching the movie, I will be at least a little bit speechless. Okay. I'm expecting a crazy town banana pants show. Based solely off the trailer, I'd have to probably just agree (laughs) with you. I'm not really sure what to expect. I don't necessarily think that we're going to see a coherent plot from moment to moment. I'm expecting this to be your typical jukebox type musical where they've got a set list that they've got to hit through and they have constructed a narrative to move you from song to song to song. I'm guessing that it'll probably be done pretty well, but I am just in the camp. This is going to be a series of vignettes, sort of short music videos. I don't expect a lot of dialogue. You say short music videos? I think they're going to be regular length music videos either way i am going to fire up the trailer for everybody listening so you can listen to the trailer get a sense of what the movie is we will be back after that's done playing and we will have seen the movie so we'll let you know what we think about it we'll be right back in 1968 a revolutionary piece of entertainment was written and played for the first time It was the creation of an extraordinary British composer, Peter Townsend. It was performed by an incredible music group called The Who. It was titled Tommy. The unusual theme of the story immediately captured the imagination of an entire generation. Tommy became a classic, enjoyed by countless millions and performed by artists all over the world. Now, director Ken Russell with producer Robert Stigwood have embarked on what seemed to many an impossible goal, to make a movie of Tommy. They assembled some of the most important names in the international motion picture and music worlds. Columbia Pictures and Robert Stigwood 
are proud to announce Tommy, the movie. the mother, Oliver Reed, the lover, Jack Nicholson, the doctor, Eric Clapton, the preacher, Tina Turner, the acid queen, Elton John, the pinball wizard, Keith Moon, Uncle Ernie, the music, the who, Roger Daltrey, Tommy, Tommy, your senses will never be the same. Tommy, the movie. Your senses will never be the same. And we're back. Julia, what is your initial reaction of Tommy? My initial reaction is that I wasn't as mystified and confused as I thought I was going to be. I think they did a pretty good job of creating a narrative. Yeah. For us. I realized about five minutes into the movie that I misinterpreted the phrase rock opera as a movie with a bunch of music videos as part of it. No, it is legit rock and roll opera that we just watched. Not a jukebox musical, not a series of little vignettes all set to music. No, this is beginning to end like someone hit play on the album and just put visuals to go with it so i don't know what i was thinking there in the first half because it's exactly what it said on the tin (laughs) so should we go through this yeah let's do it all right when the movie started i tried keeping track of everything that was going on and i basically said i don't think i can take notes for this movie because there's just too much going on and then i ended up going back and actually taking notes so i do have three pages of notes for this one yeah the first few minutes of the movie Happened pretty fast. The Overture, as it's called. I actually have the track listing for the Tommy album. I'm sure that's here on very my phone. helpful. It's going to help us go through song by song. So the Overture, we start with a silhouette of a man standing on top of a mountain with the sun behind him. And the sun quickly sets. It's just a visual thing that's going to come into play later. But this whole beginning few minutes is 
a young couple falling in love, getting married, being torn apart by the war. I think they did a really good job of summarizing their relationship and showing us how much they loved each other Mm -hmm. so that we can be properly heartbroken when the next part in the story unfolds. Yeah. During that overture, we get the courtship, we get the marriage, we get the honeymoon interrupted by a war, the husband going away. And then we learn that the husband is a airline pilot, which means he is a captain and his last name just happens to be Walker. So he is Captain Walker. We have a literal Captain Walker. And which a just literal Mrs. Walker. Tickled me to no end, for sure. But things do not go very well for Captain Walker. He is shot down during a mission and the news is delivered to Mrs. Walker, whose first name is Nora. I kept calling her Mrs. Walker in my notes because I didn't catch that her first name was Nora. It wasn't that you didn't catch it. They never said it. The only reason why we know that it was Captain and Mrs. Walker is because they sung it to us. Yeah. They sung us what was in the letter that Captain Walker was never coming home, that he had been lost and presumed dead with a group of other men. And then later on, kind of in the same song, when her son is born, they sing, Mrs. Walker, isn't it a great day? Your son has been born. And Tommy's not only born on a particularly nice day, it's the day that they declare victory against the enemy. I think in the original album, the third song in the listing is called 1921, but I think they changed it in the movie to 1951. That way the time frame works out a bit better. So I think the idea is that in the original, this is a World War One situation, but in the movie, they switched it up to World War Two. Okay. That way it's a bit more modern there. So that they can bring the main events of this movie up to the 70s. Exactly. Nora is, of course, heartbroken that she is now a war widow with this young son that she is named Tommy. And we get to see them doing the war memorial stuff and whatnot. And that encapsulates the first two tracks on the album. Overture and It's a Boy, introducing who these people are. And then we get into that third track, which on the album is called 1921. But in the movie, they changed it to 1951. And we have this scene where Nora brings Tommy to a uh, holiday camp, is what they call it. It reminded me of the resort that they go to in Dirty Dancing, Mm -hmm. where people would just go off to camps and resorts and spend a significant amount of time there. It's not like you're just going for a week. You go for the summer type of thing. That's kind of what it felt like. That must be a thing that not middle-class American people do. I think it's kind of an upper-middle-class thing. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't feel particularly working class. I feel like if you have money and you can go away for a month and a half. Yeah. That sort of people. I wonder what that must be like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any frame of reference for that. Neither do I. But while they're here at this holiday camp, Nora meets someone that we come to know as Uncle Frank. This also reminded me of Dirty Dancing because there is one particular woman, Vivian, her name was Vivian, who left her businessman husband behind in New York City and attended this camp all summer long and attached herself to one of the young men who work there and enjoyed herself over the course of the summer. Okay, well... So it kind of reminded me of that. And I felt like it was the opposite but same situation that Frank attached himself to this 
young single mother who was obviously fairly wealthy, it felt opportunistic to me. Okay. And because this is how we meet Frank, didn't trust him the whole movie. Even after he proved himself, still don't trust him. Yeah, he's an interesting character. So Nora, played by Anne Margaret, and Oliver Reed is Frank, but they pretty much get together and Nora more or less tells Tommy, okay, this is your Uncle Frank. We're going to be a family. He's going to be like a father to you. It's pretty well established that by the end of that summer, the twosome pairing of Tommy and his mother Nora are now the three of them. Yeah, like I said, I didn't trust him the whole movie. I kept expecting him to steal her jewels and run away. But he went home with her and they got married and they stayed together the whole movie. Yeah, I think Frank legitimately fell in love with Nora and they had a legitimate marriage. I think so. Yeah, I don't know why you were so distrusting of him through the whole movie. Like, sure, when he shows up, he's like combing his hair all suave and he declares Nora as the winner of the best legs competition and he's a little smarmy and whatnot. But over the course of the movie, he is always there. He is always there. Throughout the movie, I find his motivation suspect and he doesn't always behave in the most upstanding manner. Well, that's where we start to get into a different thing. Yeah. Frank can be completely dedicated to Nora, but he can also be a greasy shyster type of thing. Yeah, and he seems to manage that type of split. Yeah, I look at him and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a greasy dude. He's gonna pull a scheme or something like that. But I never once thought that he was pulling one over on Nora. I could see him taking advantage of Tommy's abilities, but I don't think I ever envisioned him as the kind that would be taking advantage of Nora. I always felt like they were on pretty equal footings, Frank and Nora. I think there are times in the movie that I agree with you and times in the movie I disagree with you because Nora's no saint herself. Well, I never said that either of them were. (laughs) No, what I mean is that sometimes her motivations are suspect as well. Sometimes she genuinely is sad for her son and then sometimes she's like, ooh, look how much money my son is making me. (laughs) Yeah. So she does the same thing that Frank does. I think Frank just doesn't more often. But getting back to the story, because we're like jumping all over. Yeah, let's get back to the timeline. Because when Nora brings Uncle Frank back home after the summertime, they are getting ready to be a family. Nora's singing about how you got a new dad now, because the only father that Tommy has ever known has been a photograph. And he's got the airplane wallpaper. He's got the airplane models and whatnot. He's aware that his father was a pilot, but he never actually knew his dad. And so Tommy is tucked into bed. Nora goes off to bed or whatever. And then suddenly Tommy's bedroom door opens and there's a man there dressed in an Air Force uniform. I was expecting this movie to be rife with symbolism. And I certainly wasn't disappointed. Holy cow, was I not disappointed. But there were some surprising times, this being the first, I think, where the movie was literal and I thought it was being symbolic. Mm -hmm. I thought that Tommy was internalizing the fact that he has a new dad and he was having a dream vision type deal with his own dad and trying to marry the two together. But as it turns out, it was literal. Yeah, his dad, like his real biological father, came back out of the blue. Like six years later? In the middle of the night. Okay, okay. So however he's been gone for six years or so, Mm. he comes home, it's the middle of the night, and he goes to his son's bedroom first? 
first of all, how does he know where his son's bedroom is? Maybe he was looking for his wife and just happened to find the son first. Okay, I just... Okay, the whole thing makes zero sense. Because it really, really does. Nora is told that her husband is missing. Yes. Not dead, just missing. And over the years, they evolve that into, okay, he's probably dead. And she mourns him. The moment that the Air Force finds out that he is still alive and is going to bring him home. She should be getting a messenger from the Air Force, a letter, a call, a visit, something saying, oh, hey, he's alive, he's coming home. This whole Captain Walker coming in out of the blue in the middle of the night, come on. That's ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. And so what happens next? I'm not sure they should have felt the need to keep it secret. If they had called the cops and said, hey, this is what happened, they probably could have gotten away with it. Okay, so what happens is that Captain Walker goes from Tommy's room down the hall to Nora's room. And of course, Nora is there in bed with Frank because they are now a couple. Yeah, they are actively in bed together. Yes. They are all sorts of sweaty. And so Captain Walker kicks in the door, starts shouting and yelling. Frank overreacts, grabs a lamp and kills Captain Walker. You say overreacts. Well, yeah. I'm not sure it's an overreaction. So you think Frank just straight up murdered Captain Walker? Okay, from Frank's point of view, he is in bed with his wife with their six-year-old son down the hall and an unknown man kicks open the door and starts yelling. What are you going to do? You're going to attack him. He had the right to attack the intruder. The very fact that this man was an intruder gives Frank the right to attack him. This mystery man, as long as he remains a mystery man, was breaking and entering. See, that's the thing. I don't think that this is a situation where Captain Walker kicks in the door and Frank is immediately there. No words exchanged. Oh my gosh, there's an intruder. Gotta bash him. This is Captain Walker walking in. Nora, what are you doing? I'm still alive. Why are you with him? Now, granted, it's a rock opera. We don't know exactly what was right. said because they didn't sing it. Right. Okay. So you think that it was a more conscious decision on Frank's part to kill this man. Right. Because Frank freaked out. Frank was like, okay, here I am in this situation. I'm just a guy who owns a holiday camp and I fell in love with this woman and I'm now... Her, I guess, I don't know if they ever got married, probably like husband or something like that. They probably remarried. But he's like, I'm now caught in this situation. I don't know how to get out of it. I'm caught in a really awkward thing where who do I, not who do I side with, but how do I? You really think Frank thinks that much? No, I don't think he had time to think, which is why he grabbed a lamp and killed Captain Walker. That's what I'm saying. He didn't have time to think. I don't think he murdered this man on purpose. I think he was defending his home. That's why I said it was an overreaction. I don't think it's an overreaction. I think it's an appropriate reaction. Okay. I think when somebody walks into your bedroom and who is not supposed to be there, you get to attack them. I don't think it was an overreaction. I think if they had called the police and done things the right way, they could have argued their point in court and been fine. But no, instead they freak out again. Right, because Tommy is there to see everything. Yes. He got up out of bed, followed his real father 
this mystery man in the Air Force uniform, down the hall and saw the murder take place. And so Frank and Nora get right up in Tommy's face and they start singing about how he didn't hear anything, he didn't see anything, he's not going to say anything. And they really hammer it home. So from that point on, he doesn't hear anything, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't see anything. Mm -hmm. They broke him. They bring him to a carnival or an amusement park or something like that, and he just has zero reaction. Yep. Nothing at all. Okay, side note about the carnival scene. They're all wearing matching outfits. Mm -hmm. That was just delightful. What I thought was interesting about the amusement park carnival scene is how at one point Frank is playing a light gun shooter game with Tommy and it's a game where you have a giant emplacement gun and you're shooting down military aircraft and Nora does not like that at all. Right. And Frank is very unsympathetic. He is. I'm actually very surprised that this carnival had this game at all. It seems a little insensitive. Yeah. This is not long after World War II where many, many people died in the exact manner that you're playing. Like, too soon. Yeah. <laughs> That's like any game where you play as John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> it will never not be too soon when it comes to jokes about John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Throughout the movie, we're going to see a pattern emerge that is set up in this first scene at the carnival where Tommy has just cut himself off from the world where everything seems to be going fine. And then all of a sudden, Nora will turn and she'll get real, real sad. Mm -hmm. That happens all the time, constantly. Yeah. Everything starts out fine, and then Nora will think for a moment about how awful things are and how it's all kind of her fault. She helped do that, and she'll get sad. <laughs> Something happens at the carnival. Tommy finds a mirror, and this is the beginning of his fascination with mirrors. They seem to be the one thing that he really is able to connect with when he's looking at a mirror of his own reflection. Yeah, it seems like all he can see is himself, which there's a number about that much further down in the movie where Nora, I think she realizes that maybe for the first time and it upsets her that he can't see her, but he can see himself. Yeah. She doesn't like being excluded from his life in that way. I think in this carnival scene, Frank and Nora don't really know the full extent of Tommy's deafness, dumbness, and blindness. Um, there's got to be a better way to lump all that together. But we cut from the carnival to Christmas and how Nora's all excited for Christmas, but Tommy can't see, hear, or say anything. And Nora starts being very concerned about Tommy's immortal soul. Right. She makes a good point. If you view salvation from the point of view of you have to learn things, you have to know about Jesus, and you have to pray to Jesus in order to be saved, from that point of view, Tommy's got a problem. Mm -hmm. And she makes a good point that he will never know about Jesus and he will never know how to pray. So that's definitely where we, it's, I mean, it's not the first time we have religious overtones, but it's where it starts to play a larger role. In fact, we go from that Christmas where Tommy is just a little boy, we flash forward to him as an adult. He's now Roger Daltrey with the hair and the thousand yard stare because he's supposed to be blind. And Nora has brought him to this church. She has turned to religious healing. And I get the sense 
this church is pretty out there. It's pretty extreme. I get the sense that she has been to every church. I think with this church, they have just copy-pasted all of the iconography of a Catholic service and replaced that with specifically Marilyn Monroe. Yes. But more broadly, just the rock and roll culture. And there are some interesting visuals to be seen in here. First of all, Eric Clapton is the preacher, so there's that. But all of the, I guess, altar boys or whatever you call people that help with the service, they're all wearing these Marilyn Monroe porcelain looking masks. They have a giant statue of Marilyn Monroe that they're rolling down the center of the chapel. All of the stained glass is all her. Mm-hmm. And the communion is pills and liquor. Mm -hmm. Something I did find very interesting and paralleled to not only Christianity, but specifically a story that our faith stresses is a story in the New Testament where a woman with a certain malady, uh, I think she had like a blood disease or something, I can't quite remember, knew that Jesus was coming to town and knew of his reputation that he can heal people. And her faith was so great that she knew that all she had to do was touch his robe and she would be healed. Hmm. And she did. And she was. So the congregation is made up of mostly your standard fare youths. But there is a section filled with people who want to be healed. The blind, the deaf, people with varying levels of palsy. So the people who can't physically bend down and kiss the feet of this Marilyn Monroe statue. All they do is touch the hem of her dress and then move on. I liked that parallel. And once all of the regular worshipers have passed by this statue, Nora brings Tommy up to the front and she doesn't so much let him simply touch the statue. She throws him at the statue. He's on the ground sort of pawing at it. And all of this pawing causes the statue to fall over and just shatter all over the ground, thereby signifying to me that, similar to what you said earlier, she's gone to many different churches and organizations and whatnot, and each one have failed her. They've fallen apart like this statue. I think it speaks to her desperation and her own blindness. She knows what's wrong with him. She knows exactly. Somewhere in her head, she knows. You think? Yes. She does. She may not know it, but she knows. And I think that her efforts to heal him are just as much out of guilt than out of a genuine motherly desire to heal her son. She knows when this all started. She knows what she did and what she helped do. It's not like she forgot about it. I think she is not putting those things together. I don't think she has any clue that Tommy's situation is a direct result of that incident. I just don't see how she could miss it. But that's something we should talk about more in a later scene. Yeah. So Nora has tried religion with Tommy and now Uncle Frank. This scene can either be taken literally or it can be taken figuratively. I'm not quite sure which way to take it because we start with Uncle Frank and he brings Tommy to, I'd say more or less a bordello. Yeah. I got the sense that he owned it and ran it. Yeah. Or at least like worked that. there. Because Tommy was sitting at a table, uh, probably selling porn, selling something. Yeah. It's probably porn. And one of the other guys there makes a suggestion to Frank, and Frank's like, hmm, that's a good idea. And so Frank hands Tommy over to the 
Acid Queen, played by Tina Turner. And How did you know she was called the Acid Queen? Because... From the credits, of course. Her song says, because I'm a gypsy, the Acid Queen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't catch that. Okay. Okay. So she brings him upstairs and we get this extended sequence where Tina Turner transforms into this giant, shiny Iron Maiden type of thing covered in syringes and Tommy is put inside. And every time the Iron Maiden thing closes and then opens again, Tommy is different somehow. Well, the very first transformation takes him from his normal gray, drabby street clothes into only wearing like a loincloth type thing. Like imagine a crucifix. Exactly. It's a crucifix diaper. So that's the first transformation. And then it closes again, opens, and now it's that same thing, but he's covered in those red flowers. The poppies. Poppies. Which is very British. Mm -hmm. Every year you see the red poppies. And then he also has the memorial cross thing. And everywhere he's been punctured by these needles in the Iron Maiden, there's a poppy. And then the Iron Maiden closes and opens again. And then he's a skeleton covered in snakes. And at one point, he's his dad. That's right. I think the last time it opens, he starts off as his father. Yes. And then slowly transitions back into himself before just collapsing on the floor. So my understanding from the limited information, really, it's quite limited information that we get, is that Frank's intention was for Tina Turner to make a man out of Tommy. That is very likely due to the lyrical content of the song. Yeah, but she didn't do that. She just gave him a decent acid trip. I think so. Which is a whole lot more expensive than just sleeping with him. Like, she was paid to sleep with him. But then she goes and takes that money and spends it on acid instead. Well, it might have been both. It might have been that she is called the acid queen because she will take someone upstairs, give them acid, and then sleep with them. Uh, no. He was fully clothed when Frank found him. Yeah, when Frank found him, because the acid queen was done with him by that point. So who redressed him? I don't know, because it's a crazy sequence. He did not have sex that night. Cool. I'm all for that. Anytime that a deaf, dumb, and blind kid is not taken advantage of sexually, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Leave those kids alone. (laughs) Okay, I agree with you. I really, really do agree with you. But the life that Tommy was leading was very, very isolated, which it didn't have to be. It really didn't have to be. He could have led a full life if his parents actually figured out how to communicate with him. But... In his current state, he's not going to have those experiences. He's not going to fall in love. He's not going to have sex. So I can see from a certain point of view... A certain point of view? How Frank came to the idea of, okay, well, let's get him laid. It might shock him out of it. Well, I suppose so, but I don't think that was their intention. I think their intention was to get a virgin laid for the first time. I don't know. It's an odd sequence with a lot of imagery that I really just was not able to connect two and two together. What's really distressing is what happens next, because Nora and Frank decide to leave Tommy with a cousin. Yeah, I think... Cousin Kevin, I believe. Basically, they're looking for babysitters while they go out. Mm -hmm. And the first one is Cousin Kevin. This was, I think, the most disturbing part of the movie for me. The 
the next two scenes. It's really all just one song, right? I think so. Yeah. Because Kevin is sadistic and he abuses Tommy physically, puts his head underwater, leaves him out in the rain, burns him with cigarettes. Yep. Puts a fire hose on him. Beats him with a belt. He's trying to see, okay, this cousin of mine who is deaf, dumb, and blind, how non-responsive is he really? And he just wails on him. It's pretty dark. Not as dark as what comes next. Yep. When Tommy is left with Uncle Ernie, who is a drunk, and not just a drunk, he is a molester. Now, Uncle Ernie, that's the same man who was in cahoots with Frank to get Tommy laid, right? Probably. I think so. Not 100% sure, though. So, yeah, Uncle Ernie is a molester. That scene was pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it's not like they depicted anything graphic, but there was was a lengthy dark screen. Like, it was just black. With heavy breathing and very disturbing sounds. And you almost get the sense, and this is where I get really skeeved out, that Frank suspects something or maybe knows something about Uncle Ernie, but doesn't do anything about it. Well, I took the lighting the newspaper on fire as a threat. Yeah, like keep your hands to yourself. Yes. That would make sense, because there's a lot that's kind of hard to read in this movie. Yeah. But Ernie stays in the picture for the entire movie. Yeah. From time to time, he does crop back up. Uncle Ernie, by the way, is played by Keith Moon, who is the drummer for The Who. Okay. So things come best in threes. So we have the sadistic cousin. We have the molester friend. And the third in the series of Do You Think It's Okay If We Do This is Do You Think It's Okay If We Just Let Him Stand In Front Of The Mirror? Mm -hmm. And Frank's answer to all of the questions... All the times that Nora's asked the question is, sure, why not? So they let him just stand in front of the mirror and let the mirror be his caretaker. Mm -hmm. And they don't leave the house. They don't leave him alone. They just stop paying attention to him. And then we get this thing where Tommy's been staring at a mirror for a while now. And after each one of these run-ins with Kevin and Ernie, he's looking at the mirror and he sees himself in one shade of color and then another shade of color. And by the time we're here in front of the mirror, there are three different colored Tommies and they merge together into one full color Tommy. And Yes. I read into that that the experiences of our lives make us into who we are. Mm -hmm. Every time he experienced a trauma, it added a certain amount of color to his whole. And I like that concept. I wish they had applied it as well to good things. Yeah. They only applied it to very traumatic things. And that's not what creates us. Everything does, the good and the bad. So I appreciated the point they were making. I think they could have made it better. Okay, so Mirror Tommy leads Regular Tommy on a bit of a sojourn. And Regular Tommy, his face is alive the way we've never seen it. He is delighted to see his reflection as an independent person, and he is willing to follow that person, which he does. And he is just so happy while this is Mm. happening. And he follows him into a junkyard. Yeah. He's climbing over cars past appliances and whatnot. But Mirror Tommy suddenly just disappears and leaves regular Tommy to stumble around in the dark, not really sure where he is or what he's doing. Up to that moment, regular Tommy was having no trouble maneuvering through the space. He could see everything around him just fine. But as soon as Mirror Tommy disappears, regular Tommy returns to his blind state. But then he finds something. He finds a pinball machine and he just starts playing it. And he's standing out in the middle of this junkyard playing pinball. By the way, this pinball machine has to be plugged in. It must be magic because there's no power anywhere in that junkyard. Right. It must be magic. And there's lots of like 
supernatural magic-y type things that happen in this movie, so I'm good with that. Yeah, because it's a rock opera. What are you going to do? He's found by a couple of watchmen that are walking around with their dog because, you know, you got to watch out for the kids. And so they call Tommy's parents and they come and get him. And it's discovered that this, as the song says, deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a mean pinball. And he rises quickly through what I can only assume is the international ranks of competitive pinballing, which is a thing in this movie. And it makes the family a whole heaping lot of money. Obscenely wealthy. Right. And I'm just curious as to where that money is coming from. They brush it aside. They really do. Because the point is that they become rich. Frank is out on a yacht covered in women. Nora is up on a balcony of a gigantic mansion. Yep. Huge mansion. And then we get to probably what is the best known song from this album, which is Pinball Wizard, where Tommy has come to the world championship of the pinball thing, and he is there against Elton John. Yes. Who is playing the pinball king or whatever. The wizard. He's the pinball That's right. The credits literally call him the pinball wizard. Which I was a little confused about because isn't Tommy the pinball wizard? Right. In the song. Yeah. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid is the pinball wizard. But in this scenario of Elton John's character being named the pinball wizard, he is the one singing the song. So I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) It really doesn't matter. It's all about the visuals. Elton John is up on stilts with gigantic boots, which I'm very impressed with how well he was able to maneuver. Mm-hmm. They never showed him actually walking, but there was a couple times where he's like tapping his foot to the beat sort of thing. And he's like actually moving the whole gigantic boot. So I was kind of impressed. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I can't help but think that Elton John would have had a better chance at winning the world championship if his pinball machine was 100% pinball machine and not... Half pinball machine, half piano. Yeah, I think Elton John was playing a different game. Mm-hmm. Because he, as the song says, has to give his pinball crown to Tommy. Yes. He is dethroned, knocked aside, and carried out to the booze of the crowd. Yeah. It's crazy how quickly the crowd turns on him. Well, Roger Daltrey, especially at this age, is much better looking than Elton John. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you that. I mean, there's a reason that they chose him to play Tommy. I mean, he is the front man of the Who, but, you know, he's very, very good looking. Which is really saying something coming from you because you don't like blonde men. I don't. And I think his blondness detracts from how good he looks. But you just can't deny how hot he is. He spends, I feel like, a third... Maybe only a quarter, but a third of this movie without a shirt on. Well, events are about to turn. That's true. And once those events turn, I'm not sure he really ever wears a shirt again. (laughs) (laughs) As Tommy is crowned the pinball king or wizard or whatever we're saying is the ultimate title championship whatever award nora is back in the mansion and she is relishing in this luxurious lifestyle but she looks at tommy and every time she thinks about his disabilities it makes her upset yeah she's doing the thing again where everything is wonderful and happy and then oh okay now nora is sad you get the sense that it's that guilt sneaking in yeah. that you were talking about. Yeah, because she knows. And she 
is watching him on TV and is trying to change the channel. And we get some amazing commercials mm-hmm. for, for beans. Rex beans and a couple of other little snippets of snippets. other commercials that aren't given nearly as much. As the beans. Yeah. But the TV is supernaturally turning the channel back to the coverage of Tommy. Mm-hmm. And it's driving her kind of insane. Wackadoodle crazy. Yes. So she ends up throwing her champagne bottle that she's been singing about at the TV, breaking the TV screen. And out of the TV comes flooding bubbles, like soap bubbles. Like foam. Yeah. Just flooding, flooding, flooding. And she is... Bathing in it? Yeah, she is bathing in it. She is rolling around in it. She is trying to clean herself of the guilt that she feels. Yeah. She Uh, feels dirty and she is trying to clean herself. One interesting thing that I noticed in this movie is for the most part, Oliver Reed and Anne Margaret, they don't get aged up alongside Tommy. They more or less stay looking the same through the whole movie. So Anne Margaret is running around as Tommy's mother who is now an adult, and she looks the very same as she did when he was born. They did do a good job of changing their styles so that you can tell that time is passing. Yeah. But you're right, they don't age. But getting back to the TV. Yes. We start with the foam. Yes, we start with the foam, and that's great, and I enjoy the symbolism of it. Next comes out the beans. Yep. Which, when I first saw the beans, I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't, before I realized it was beans... I thought it was excrement. Okay. The opposite of soap. So she is now bathing in beans. And following the beans, that's where we get, I want to say it's like chocolate pudding or mud or something like that. It is a dark, viscous. Yeah. So I think production wise, it's like a pudding. Yeah. I think symbolism wise, it's what I thought the beans were. Okay. I think that Nora feels guilty about exploiting her son. And so she's trying to wash her conscience clean. But then she gets sidetracked by all of the money that they get every time they endorse a product. And all of that sullies her to the point where now she's just rolling around in this thick brown mud yes that is covering every surface and she's flinging it places it's just everywhere it's very dramatic she pours it on thick literally it's a very heavily symbolic scene right up till the moment frank walks in oh yeah Frank walks in the door busts into the room and suddenly everything is as clean yep and it's just Nora rolling around on the floor in this frilly, fuzzy bathrobe thing that she was wearing over her... I don't even know what kind of outfit you call that. I honestly don't either. The champagne bottle is inside the TV and the TV is broken. So that did happen. So Frank's response to all this, he's already three sheets to the wind, is just to lay down on the bed. I think he does a little burp and then falls over asleep. Mm -hmm. But then he reveals that he has found a doctor who is willing to look at Tommy, which, why didn't they do this sooner? Well, I think the point is brought up that this doctor is very expensive. That's a good point. They make a show of writing the check. This doctor is played by Jack Nicholson. So he is a very expensive doctor. He hooks Tommy up to all sorts of machines, sensors, and graphs. And this doctor basically tells Nora and Frank it's all psychosomatic. Physically, there's nothing wrong with him. And that whatever happens next is up to Tommy. Jack Nicholson sings. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. He doesn't do anything very grand. 
he just says some talking, singing combo stuff. He's got a few lines, yeah. Yeah, it's got a few lines. But it doesn't sound bad. But it doesn't sound bad. No. Yeah. Do you think that Nora and the doctor had an affair? At the time, I understood it that the doctor was having like a fantasy about her. But now that you say it, yes, I think they had an affair. They had meaningful glances. There was at one point where they were like dancing off together and Frank was just on the sidelines looking on. I don't know. I I feel like it was implied. Yeah, I can go with that. I mean, he wasn't even a big part of the movie, so. It was really just that one scene. Just that one scene. And then, yeah. But this revelation that Tommy's condition is psychosomatic just throws Nora into a whirl. She brings him back to the house. He's standing in her room in front of this gigantic mirror and she's just shouting at him, trying to figure out why he would not see her, hear her, and acknowledge her. And he only acknowledges the mirror. She's very frustrated. She is. I think she's very hurt by this perception that she doesn't matter to him, that only he matters to him. I think that's that's how she takes it. Mm -hmm. This song comes to a head where does she push him or kick him oh she pushes him she pushes him at the mirror stumbles back falls through and it's a giant mirror it is and it turns out it's a window yeah now okay was this symbolic or literal that he crashed through the mirror and fell into the pool i'm gonna say literal okay yeah i'm just gonna say literal Because with the amount of religious symbolism and iconography, and we are just getting going with that, that he is being baptized by water and is being reborn. And as he is being reborn, he is being healed. And Tommy begins singing for the first time, really. We've had a couple of instances earlier on the movie where you can hear Tommy's voice, but it's not him actively singing. Right. It's his inner voice calling out yes real quick on the on his inner voice calling out he's saying things like touch me hear me see me i think he wants to be loved and he doesn't feel loved by his parents that's fair but he comes out of this water and he starts singing i'm free yep i think i'm free is probably the second best known who song off of this album yeah but it's more or less tommy running around (laughs) he begins running through all of these different scenes in front of all of these people, just running headlong. He runs along the beach. He does cartwheels. But he is free from this sensory deprivation prison that he's been in since a child. What do you make of the sequence of events that free him? Why does he regain his abilities now? I think it's because he went through the mirror. Ah. I think that's what did it. I don't think it was being submerged because when he was with Cousin Kevin, Cousin Kevin would hold him underwater. Mm, But not all of him. That's true. Not all of him. But some religions are good with a sprinkling. Some religions like ours, you must be completely submerged. I think going through the mirror means that mirror Tommy and real world Tommy were made one person. Mm, Those two images smashed together, the mirror shattered, and then he fell into the water and came out a different person. A combination of those two. Interesting. I like that. And I see a certain iconography in that. Religious iconography, of course, in that there's baptism by the water. There's the physical baptism, the act of being submerged underwater. And then there is the spiritual baptism of receiving the Holy Ghost. You are taking on something additional inside of you. So I think there is a parallel there. So Anne-Margaret tracks Tommy down. He's lying on a rock over by the ocean or something like that. Which I got the sense that 
But he had traveled quite a distance. Yeah. And that she had to chase after him. But when she finds him, she discovers that he can see, he can hear, he can talk. And I think it's Nora who first suggests that he is going to be some sort of messianic figure. And he takes her jewelry and throws it into the ocean because he's about to usher in a new world order. <laughs> I guess so. I certainly see how someone who is miraculously healed in that way can become the center of religious attention. I struggle understanding what happens next. This church that he forms... I don't really understand what their center is, where they're putting their faith and what they're hoping to achieve from that faith. It's very unclear. It's a cult. They right. don't have to be clear. That's true. It's just, it's a cult of personality, but I'm not even 100% clear on what the purpose of that personality is. It is made clear by the end of the film that it really is still all about pinball. But up until then, pinball isn't really mentioned anymore. There's lots of talk about love. And I think they were trying to get at the idea of equality. It just wasn't very clear. This whole church thing. So we get to see the rise of the cult of Tommy through the eyes of a little girl named Sally Sullivan. She is the daughter of a preacher and she is obsessed with Tommy. And so she goes out to one of his revivals or whatever and she is so gung-ho to get a hold of him but she's trampled by the crowd knocked over and gets this giant gash on her face which that is has the, to get stitched up yeah which is the same side face as her as tommy's father's burn mm -hmm. and it's weird because we follow sally from when she's a little girl obsessed with tommy all the way up to when she's an adult and she marries a rock star from texas i think it was yes but the actress never changes. Yeah, the actress never changes. I loved that. They didn't age her up. They just told us the story of the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And she's acting it out as the 11, 12-year-old girl. And the man that she marries is... is like an 11-year-old boy. Yeah. Dressed up like Frankenstein's monster. Yes. And her dad marries them. Mm -hmm. Because he is, a, of course, a preacher. Yep. Who has a Rolls Royce. Oh, that was definitely symbolism about the greed of religion yeah well-paid churches and whatnot yeah which i think they were trying to drive that home because tommy's church has a sense of equality has this sense of they're all eating at the same table he invites his congregation his believers into his home his mansion and invites them to stand up on the level that he is at which is what makes me think he's trying to drive home equality we go from this scene involving Sally Sullivan to something that's a bit more out of left field, I think. We start off with just ordinary Joes working the beat, and then we get a scene where one biker gang attacks another biker gang, and the violence is ended by Tommy because he hang glides in from out of nowhere. Oh my gosh. And starts singing about how he is a sensation. Of all the wackadoo things in this movie... This might be the wackadooiest. <laughs> Jim just randomly flying around, yeah. being carried on this hang glider. Yes. What they're getting at is the rapid spread of this sensation. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tommy's not wrong. It may sound weird to sing a song about yourself talking about how you're a sensation, 
but he's not wrong. And he's able to get the motorcycle gangs to stop fighting and dance in peace. Mm-hmm. And he gathers up a bunch of followers from biker gangs, soldiers, the people that were worshiping at the Marilyn Monroe Church. He gets people from everywhere. And like you said, he establishes a house where his followers gather. He has... Uncle Frank and Nora pretty much run it for him. Like, there are people busting down the door to get in. And Tommy's like, make it bigger. Build more. And Frank's like, okay, we can extend your reach worldwide. It's What we want to do is pretty expensive, though. And so Frank, with the help of Uncle Ernie, they begin to merchandise very heavily. This is definitely where they took a wrong turn. The point is made that things are more expensive than the followers think they should be. And they reluctantly hand over more money. But you can tell it's getting to them. Yeah. Now, back when Tommy was a kid and he first met Uncle Frank and they were leaving the holiday camp, there was a little bit where kid Tommy was like, oh, I can't wait to grow up and wear a green coat and have my own holiday camp of my own. And when he gets to be older and has his cult personality, he wears a green coat and he has a holiday camp. Everything you wanted to do when he was a kid. And when he was at the pinball championships... He was wearing a green coat there, too. Mm -hmm. Green is his theme color. So now that he has this church fairly well established, everything's green. But like you said, the people start to get very tired of just being sold things Mm -hmm. constantly. And so they come to Tommy and they demand enlightenment. They came here. They followed him because they wanted to be like him, to reach the enlightenment that he had gotten. And so he has them put on dark glasses, earplugs, and they put a cork in their mouth and he sets them all up with pinball machines so that they can play pinball. Yeah, I mean, in Tommy's defense, he delivers. They ask for enlightenment. He delivers the enlightenment that he received. He was deaf, dumb, and blind and found a connection with a pinball machine. And that's how this whole thing started. That's what he did for them. And they immediately reject him. They start smashing the machines. I was so surprised. I thought, oh, this is what they were here for the whole time. They are being taught what Tommy learned. And they will be happy with that. That's what they're here for. Nope. I think it's too little too late. I think if he had started by saying, okay, I'm going to take away your senses with these glasses and these earplugs and you know where to put the cork. That was a great line. (laughs) And you will be led to your pinball machine. I think if he had started that way, he would have a more successful and a more deserved cult of personality. Would have been a little different. Yeah. Yeah. But he took too long and took too much of their money to get there. And they riot. They riot. Oh my gosh. They riot. Frank is stabbed in the back. Yep. Nora is killed from a bottle over the head. Yes. And Tommy is beaten up, I guess, bloodied or whatever. And he's driven out into the wilderness. As soon as he is able to, he staggers out of the wreckage, the burning wreckage. Literally. And flings himself into a body of water. It's unclear if it's the ocean or a lake, but it's a body of water. He flings himself into the body of water. And then he travels upstream... Stopping at a waterfall. Which is a very similar waterfall to what we saw at the beginning of the movie. Yes. I don't think it's the same exact waterfall. I think it was meant to be similar, though. I think it was meant to be similar. He is traveling backwards in his life's journey. And so he's in the waterfall area, and then he climbs a mountain, and he's in a very picturesque pastoral area, climbing this mountain, eventually crests the top, and is standing at the top, and the sun rises. A silhouette of 
a man standing in front of a bright sun. Yes. It is the mirror image of how the movie began. Exactly. So it all comes full circle. In fact, that imagery of Tommy standing in front of the sun is a visual that people know. So when the movie opened with the silhouette of a very clearly different man standing in front of the sun, I was very confused. I'm like, that's not... That's, it's not the visual that I've seen before, <laughs> but I love that symmetry. Yeah. It's fantastic. I'm not going to lie. I was really curious as to how they were going to wrap this up. I thought they did an excellent job wrapping it up. I like that his cult of personality failed. I can appreciate that it cost him his parents' lives and that he was driven back to where this all started. And that pretty much brings us to the end. Yeah. Of this crazy ride. We did not do it justice. We absolutely did not. There is so much more in this movie that we did not mention. Something that we haven't mentioned before, and I kind of want to, it might be some of my favorite symbology or reoccurring imagery from the whole movie. And there's so much, there's so much in there that we just can't say at all. You just got to go watch it yourself. But pretty early in the movie, after Captain Walker has left for war, Nora is working in a factory building bombs and the first visual we have of that scene is of the bomb like pellets i guess i don't even think that's how bombs are made but yeah they're just scooping up pellets and putting scooping them in up shells pellets and putting them in shells and it looks just like a pinball so those bomb fragments appear periodically throughout the movie and also pinballs appear periodically throughout the movie. So it's woven through, and I, I really like that. Yeah. That might have been my favorite imagery. I was about to ask what your favorite thing or part of this movie was. Would you say it's that iconographic through line throughout the whole movie? I think the bomb fragment slash pinball imagery, I think is too specific and too small a detail for me to call it my favorite thing. I guess my favorite thing kind of along those same lines is the fact of its existence. There are many, many things that appear throughout the entire movie and that call back and remind you of something from earlier. They don't necessarily have to actually be connected. Like the girl with the scar down her face, it was on the same side as Tommy's father's burn. They have nothing to do with each other, but they're the same anyways. Stuff like that. And it's through the entire movie. It's so thick that you'd have to watch it many, many times to see it all. How about you? What did you like the best? I actually liked a lot of the guest singers. I think you bring in people for a rock opera and sometimes you get Russell Crowe. Sometimes you get <laughs> Hugh Jackman to make a call out to a different opera. And from Clapton to Turner to all of the members of The Who, when they were on screen, they weren't even guests. They were actually like supposed to be there but even jack nicholson i thought the amount of people that they got for this movie was very cool and it was great to see them pop me like oh hey it's that guy oh hey it's that person i recognize them yeah i knew the list of guests i knew that we were looking for elton john and eric clapton and tina turner so when it was finally their turn it was very gratifying mm -hmm. is there something that stands out to you as your least favorite thing in the movie hmm i'm 
having a hard time thinking of anything. Yeah. Let's talk about yours and then maybe come back to me. This might be the first time I've ever not been able to think of something. Maybe I'll be inspired. I found myself a little lost at times because of the visual style of the movie. Some of the things that they were doing, I felt like they at times were throwing a lot at me that I didn't have time to process. If anything, my main complaint is that I felt like the movie was leaving me behind in places and just kept going. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's a dig on the quality of the movie. I would just say that I didn't like having something thrown up on screen that I feel like I should understand, but I don't. So I think my least favorite part of the movie is that it was made in 1975 and I was not made until more than 10 years later. So I wasn't keyed in to any of the inside jokes or not that they were jokes, but you know, inside clues that I would be privy to if I was someone of that generation. Which, like I said, is not a critique of the movie. It's a critique of my viewing experience. I think if I watched this movie again without taking notes, focusing on the thing, maybe I've listened to the album once or twice so that I could get a better sense of the songs to focus better on the visuals, you know, then it would probably change. But that's what I got. I think this movie is one that needs to be and should be seen more than once. Yeah. Several times. Well, gosh, that didn't really lead me to an idea of what I didn't like. Well, initially I was going to say I didn't like the abuse and molestation scenes, but they were handled stylistically enough that they weren't overwhelming. No, they were not. The scenes with Cousin Kevin were energetic enough and they kept things moving enough that you didn't really dwell too much on the fact that, you know, this is a cousin physically torturing a disabled family member. And they didn't come right out and say exactly what Uncle Ernie was doing to Tommy, but there was a lot of implication there, and I feel like it was handled as good as you could. Mm-hmm. Right, if you want to make that kind of trauma part of the story, I think it was presented well. Yeah, I think an exploitation-style movie would have just straight-up showed it. Uh-huh. But this is not an exploitation movie. This is a rock opera. Mm-hmm. And they can do things where Uncle Ernie fiddling with Tommy is presented as him rifling through a suitcase and having all sorts of weird trinkets hidden inside his coat. Stuff like that. I... You can't think of anything you didn't like about this movie, huh? Well, there were things that made me uncomfortable. The Acid Queen scene made me uncomfortable. The Cousin Kevin and Uncle Ernie scene made me uncomfortable. But they were supposed to make me uncomfortable. Yeah, they didn't detract from your overall experience. No, I think they added to it because they helped to communicate to me the life that Tommy was leading before he found Pinball. Mm-hmm. before he found his own enlightenment. These are the type of things that were happening to him. So I guess what I don't like is that Tommy was portrayed as being completely powerless and that his parents didn't take steps that they could have taken to help him. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically about Helen Keller. She had the same thing. She was deaf, dumb, and blind. And the story of her early childhood before Anne Sullivan came into her life I remember one specific story in that tale is that Helen at dinner wouldn't sit down and just eat her dinner. She would just go from plate to plate to plate, feeling her way around and grabbing food anywhere that she wanted and shoving it in her mouth. And Ann Sullivan came along and was like, what are you doing? No, she can't. You can't let her behave that way. You're going to make her sit down in a chair. 
And you're going to teach her how to feed herself from her own plate using utensils. So there was somebody out there who could teach Helen Keller how to relate to the world, not through sound and not through sight. It was entirely possible. And Helen Keller went on to lead a very full life. And there's no reason that Tommy had to be this isolated invalid type. It just wasn't necessary. Yeah. His parents just let it happen. So there we go. That's my <laughs> least favorite thing about the film. There we go. We found it. Yep. So what are your final thoughts or recommendations for Tommy? I enjoyed it very much. I can recommend this movie to people. You're definitely going to need to see it more than once. And I think I would definitely like to watch it again. I thought this movie was a good watch. I thought it was a good time. The only other album-themed movie that I had seen before this was Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that's another one. It's not quite the same thing as far as being a rock opera like this. It's a bit more like what I thought this movie was going to be. So I guess my recommendation is if you want a movie that is essentially an album with visuals put behind it, it is almost a two hour long music video for an entire album that tells a story along the way. Go for it. Plus, it's got Tina Turner in it. Can't go wrong. Nah. Can't go wrong with Tina Turner. Come on. And that wraps it up for us. We have one more hiatus episode coming up in a few weeks. So keep an eye on the listener page. We're going to share all of our extra information there for what you can expect for the last hiatus episode of this break. And we hope you'll tune in when that drops. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Tommy is presented by Robert Stigwood Organization Limited. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. See you next time. Just give me one more.